0: to hear, our hearts to be engaged, even in the midst of that pork that sits so deep. <laughs> um, you are a good God, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So last week we talked about busyness, and tonight's kind of part two of busyness. Um, we're going to look at a different spin. If, you're, if this is your first time with us, we're going through actually a, a series all fall um, called Enough. This is the question that we're asking. Are we enough? And we look to all these different things to try to communicate and tell us that we're enough, that we're worthy, that we're okay. So we look to whether that's we look to our, 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 our schooling, we look to our friends, we look to our hobbies, we look to our phones, we look to all these things to try to fit in so that we feel like we're enough. Last week we looked at busyness. We actually look to becoming busybodies because being busy is a badge of honor that we wear. To be busy is to be somebody, right? To be busy is to be on a mission, moving towards something. To be busy is to receive value from our society. To be busy also, as we looked at, it helps us, it distracts us from the pain in our lives. I don't want to turn around and look at what's hunt, hunting me down. I'd rather just do the next thing. And tonight we're, we're, we're looking at a different take On this idea of busy, Um, I think, in another sense, we busy ourselves because we want to be successful. We want to be somebody. There's a book called The Great Divorce. Have you read this book? Have you heard of this book by C.S. Lewis? Um, And it's a, it's a. He's a a brilliant guy, which I I quote him a lot. Um, But but he does this really great job of taking heavy theological truths and making them very creatively communicated to us. And he has a book called The Great Divorce, which is a fantasy. There are some theological truths in it, but it's a fantasy about eternity. And so in this book, there are these souls who exist in hell. Hell is the absence of God. And they exist in hell. And every once in a while, if they can find their way to a bus, they can hop on this bus and transport up to heaven to just have a little bit of relief. And so as they get on the bus and they transport themselves up into heaven, they're met by these spirits in heaven who come and try to plead with them, come in, come in. And so the book is this depiction of these different interactions between the spirits in heaven and the souls in hell. And there's this one interaction where this man and and this this soul from from hell who comes up and he looks at this woman who's, who's being kind of proclaimed Um, They're singing her praises. They're all looking at her. It's this big scene, this angelic scene. And he asks the spirit in heaven, he said, is is that the mother of Jesus? Is that Mary? And the spirit in heaven says, no, no, that's Sarah Smith. (laughs) And he goes, Sarah Sarah Smith? Who's Sarah Smith? He says, on heaven she had no fame. She had no beauty. No one looked after her. No one looked to her. She was a nobody. But man, when you met her, and when you'd come and be by her side, she was a mother to all she came alongside to. She had the most caring and tender heart. And look, she's being proclaimed. They're singing her praises. And it's this beautiful twist of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God says those who are least will be made most glorified. Those who are last will be first. Those who are proud will be humiliated. Those who are humble will be lifted high. That's the, the subversive kingdom of God where Christ is the head. So what I want us to think about tonight is, is this, this idea of being this ordinary Sarah Smith. <laughs> being this ordinary Sarah Smith. I was listening to this, this uh, comedian, um, uh, have you heard of Trey Kennedy? He, he, oh, you actually have. All right. So, Trey Kennedy, um, he, he's just started a podcast and he was talking about it. He was like watching the NFL football games. He's like, man, um, it's hard to replicate a comedian because you're just not going to do it justice at all. But he's like, every NFL quarterback, they like go back in time and they look at this letter he wrote as a first grader. It's like, I want to be an NFL quarterback. And we're like, that's amazing. He's like, yeah, everyone wrote that letter. Every boy wanted to be an NFL quarterback. It's like, I've never seen anyone's like, I want to be an accountant when I grow up. Like, we don't write those letters. He was like, man, parents, here's what I want you to do, parents. When your kid comes to you and they're like, I want to be Larry Bird. It's like, no, you're going to be a bird watcher. Here's some binoculars. I want to be Magic Johnson. No, you're going to be a magician. Here's a magic set. I want to be LeBron. No, you're going to be LeBrain. Here's a calculator. It's like we set these unrealistic expectations that we're going to be somebody great, and then we just are an accountant. And we're like, wow, this is it. So that's what we're talking about. Because what's going to happen is that soon, you know, you know like, what you're doing actually is trying to lead you somewhere. Like you're taking tests so that you can take the next test, so that you're qualified to take the next class, so that you can then get the next job so that you can then get the next class and the next test and the next blah, 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 all the way till you can graduate. And then you're gonna get a job, you're gonna wake up early, you're gonna go to work in the morning, and you're gonna work and you're gonna come home, you're gonna eat dinner, and then one day maybe you're gonna have kids, you're gonna put your kids down, and then the next day, guess what you're gonna do? You're gonna wake up, and you're gonna go to work, and you're gonna work, and that's what your life's gonna be like for 60 years. God willing. And this this came to this woman named Tish Warren who wrote a book. She wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says this. She says, at twenty-three years old, right out of college, I wanted to do big things for God. I wanted to make a difference for his kingdom. I wanted to be a world changer. I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to seek justice. So I lived in an intentional Christian community. But in my early 30s, I found my life much different than I expected. With two kids living in Nashville and a life filled with small things, small people. Small activities, small dreams, and I had no idea if my life had any meaning at all. Because what I believe, with everything that I am, is that Christ invites us into this new non-busy way to live. A new way to see the world and to understand who we are and what we are doing and what he is doing. We are invited to live into this non-busy kingdom where meaning is not found, but it's received that our gospel meets us in our busy, fearful, anxious, and tired hearts with words of grace that are not earned but given. As a Christian, the Spirit of God today can put our heart at ease in a world that is uneasy. So there's three points as we look at this text. Um, And actually, there's going to be... We're going to fly through this, and I actually want you to text me some questions. Um, And we'll do a few minutes of Q&A at the end... Um, because I think, yeah, so if you have questions as I go along, feel free to text me them. Three points, um, the busy portion, the good portion, and the invitation. All right, the busy portion. Um, we all want to do big things in our life. Um, we aren't trained to desire ordinary lives. We believe that striving more and working hard and being more busy will get us the success and accomplishment and the meaning that we, that we yearn for. We're people who want to change the world. We want to be radical and driven, transformative, impactful, the next big thing. We want to be valued, important. We want to be enough. These words become the standards of normality in in middle class, affluent sects of society. To not want to do big things, as some of you might even be thinking about me right now, as you're like, what is this guy talking about? (laughs) What is he calling me into to not want to do big things? It almost seems like lazy, seems kind of off-putting, seems wrong. Maybe some of you might even say to, to want to be ordinary seems kind of like sinful. Because to be ordinary is to be a failure in your minds. and So we busy ourselves and live these tired and anxious lives. And this passage speaks to that problem, and it shows that we're busy because of two reasons. We have a heart problem, and we have a God problem. We have a heart problem. If we look back at our text, it says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. Um, That word distracted is actually, it's it's one of a kind. It's the only time that Greek word is used. Um, And actually, the root of that word means convulsing um, or actively worried. She was serving Jesus because she was anxious to be in his presence. That word distraction is not an adjective. It's not something that she's doing, but it's a verb. It's something that she is. She seems distracted. It's the posture of her heart towards Jesus. And so as Jesus often is shown doing in the Gospels, seeing our behavior and then calling out our heart problem, he does that here with Martha. He looks at her busied actions and calls her out with her heart. He notices her actions actually are just the symptom of a distracted or anxious heart. Which is why when she comes to him with a question, he doesn't address the question. What, is, what does he say? He says, Martha, Martha, why are you so anxious? He speaks to her heart. And you and I are anxious people with hearts that are convulsing. How do I know? Well, likewise, just as, as Jesus notices, he looks at the behavior to, to, to kind of be the identifiers of where your heart is at. And our behaviors are busied, overcommitted s- schedules, distracted minds. And this is just an ex- in a symptom or an expression of our heart problem. So we're busied, we take the busy portion because we have a heart problem. And second, we, we're busy because we have a God problem. Look at the text, it's in the song we just sang about, I've never heard that song, I, I, love, I, I really love that song. She says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? What an insult, right? Do you not care about me? Do you not see what I'm doing? I'm trying to like, make this party, do you, hello. Do you not recognize me? I'm working so hard. Can you not lend a hand? And what she's doing is distrusting his provision and His goodness to us. What He's offering is not enough. It's not sufficient. She's needed to work and overwork and do more because it's out of her hands. And we do the same thing. We do not trust God with our future and so we work and we work and we work because we're not quite sure He's going to provide for us. Do you not see me? Do you not see my life? Do you not see what's going on? Can you not help So we take things into our own hands because if not, life becomes meaningless and we won't get that job. We won't find anyone to marry us. We won't have any friends. Our life will become this failure. We freak out and believe Jesus has abandoned us. Our hearts are anxious because we're trying to prove our self-worth to the world. We want people to notice how busy we are so they'll think highly of us. So what are we to do? Um, We're to find rest for our weary souls because we cannot receive dignity and value. That comes by grace alone. But that's hard for us to accept. We'd rather earn it. We'd rather earn it. But the invitation, the call is to come to the good portion. So let's keep looking. Verse 38. It says as they went on their way, Jesus entered a, a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her, her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, the good portion, which will not be taken away from her from her. Sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching was the good portion. The good portion is very ordinary. It's to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to what he's saying. It's to not be so preoccupied with the demands of her world, but to sit and to receive. Mary has nothing to prove to Jesus or to anybody. I mean, I'm sure she saw the facial expressions of, Marcia, or of Martha. I'm sure she heard Mar- Martha banging the pots and trying to get her attention. Um, sometimes when, when I'm unloading the dishwasher all by myself, poor me and Maggie's sitting over on the couch, I start to like, do it louder so that she hears me doing it with hopes that she'll get up and help me. <laughs> I'm sure that's what Martha's doing. Like, Mary, can you please come and help me? And, and Mary's not too preoccupied with that, is she? She's not real worried about what Martha's going to think about her. She's got better things to do. She doesn't have to prove herself to anybody, not her sister, not herself, and not... The Lord Jesus in front of her but we're busy in our attempt to prove ourselves to the world and to God because if I'm not doing something if we're not doing something if we if we're not the ones acting then we must we must be failures and how could I ever possibly live with myself if I'm a failure But what if his teaching, what if we're to come to his feet and he actually has something to say about failure? And he does. Um, I I found a few passages and actually there's going to be the passage and then a a rewritten passage of something that's more common of what we believe. Um, So here's what Paul, here's what Paul has to say about failure. He says, but he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weaknesses therefore I will boast Paul says all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for when I am weak then I am strong but second-worldly that's a clever name I know you can give me credit later second-worldly says this but he Jesus suggested to me my grace can be there for you but your power makes you worthy so hide from your weaknesses Therefore, we say, I will boast all the more gladly in my power and my put-togetherness, so that the power of Christ isn't needed. And when success comes, rest will come upon me. For when I am weak, I don't belong. <laughs> or this, from Philippians 3. This is Paul saying, By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, I put no confidence in my flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has more reason, I have more. To circumcise on the eighth day, The people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But look what he says. Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What do we say? We say I put all my confidence in what I do and i myself have every reason for confidence in what i do if anyone thinks he has more reason for confidence in what they do i have more straight a student serve with two nonprofit and my church youth group of the tribe of christ presbyterian church which i am a part of a christian better than all christians as to the law god only helps those who help themselves as to zeal a persecutor of all the sinners as to righteousness under the law i've got my own Whatever gain I have, I count it as mine for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as mine, because of I have rightly known Jesus as my Lord and work for a righteousness of my own." Which one do you identify with more? We boast in our weaknesses. God has made most glorified in our failures find the good portion. The good portion would be like having a parent or, or having what we just experienced, people coming and just lavishing their love and grace upon you and you eating of it. Or it'd be like having a, having a, a parent who, who sees you in your helpless state as college students and they're like, I, I get it. You don't have much money. Here, take, take some money. Go buy dinner. Here, pay your rent. And this—this imagine, I know this probably isn't the case, imagine there's no strings attached. Imagine they don't expect with that gift three phone calls a week. Imagine nothing. They're just like, hey, here's some rent. But instead you're like, no, because if I were to do that, I'd be weak. And so actually I'm going to go take three jobs and busy myself to death to work for that money so that I can sleep a little bit better at night. I'd much rather earn it. I'd much rather deserve it. I can't I can't take your grace because that would signal to me that I'm someone who's in need. The gospel breaks that down. The words of the gospel, the good portion says that yes, you are a failure and you are needy, but you don't have to fake it. It's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power, the power of the gospel, as it says in Romans 1.16, the power of the gospel is displayed to the world, is displayed to your peers on campus when your worth does not come from what they think about you. Your worth does not come from how busy and successful and driven and famous and popular you are. The power of the gospel is most clearly on display when your worth comes from God alone. And when you can walk humbly and walk with weakness and be needy and not all put together, you can be real and not fake, then the gospel is on display. That's the good portion. And he invites us into it, the last point. The Lord answers Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. And any time a, a name is used twice, there's something going on. It's, it's used as this affectionate call-in. Martha, Martha. He wants her to find rest, and he speaks to her heart. He wants her to know who he is and what he has for her. And what we will all find is that the more time we begin to speak to spend and sit with the Lord, the more we become aware of His sweetness and His grace to us. And the more we become aware of our failure and our need. And that we, the more we become aware of what we're seeking after is not actually fulfilling us. We sit and stay with Jesus. And rest is not just something that we're invited to, just some people are invited to. It's not like just the nines of the world and the Enneagram world the people who are just low-key, low like, right, isn't that nines? <laughs> you probably know it better than I do. It's not, rest is not just for the nines. It's also for the threes and the eights like me who are just driven. It's also for, for, for the threes and the eights. It's for all people. It's not just a personality thing. Actually, I would say that the pinnacle of the, of the gospel, the experience, the thing that you should most commonly feel, as a Christian walking on campus, is rest. Because what the non-Christians, the news that they have not heard or they have not held on to for themselves, is this, is this idea that I've got to go and prove myself and find myself. And that is tiring. And it creates anxious hearts. And you don't have to live like that. So we come and sit And hear the voice and hear the teaching from the one who speaks life into us. Seeking and experiencing rest becomes a natural outflow of our salvation. This is a fundamental experience of the Christian life to to center everything. If I were to suggest one thing to make just super practical, and I don't think it's that crazy, what I think we all should be doing, and I'm speaking to myself here because I'm an eight and I'm driven, and i more commonly than anything, instead of turning around and facing my problems and dealing with my emotions and seeing what Jesus has to say, I just do the next thing. So I'm speaking to myself. But what I think is one of the most fundamental and just basic things that we all can kind of own, what does it look like practically? It's to center the rest of your schedule around Christ and around Christ's people. The first things to put on your schedule should be the things that breathe life into you, your small groups, in your church and RUF, and your coffees with people, and church on Sunday, time with friends. Those, that should be the thing that takes first priority, and everything else can find its way. We come and sit at his feet and we listen to him regularly. We talk to his people. And as I talked about last, last week, we, we have them speak into our life. Because if we're a Christian, like we should want to be with Jesus. Um, I love the Chiefs. I love the Kansas City Chiefs. Every Sunday, you will find me on the couch watching the Chiefs. Because I love them. Um. The, the the beautiful thing is that Jesus invites us time and time again. No matter how crappy your week's been, he says, "Martha, Martha, Michael, Michael, Kate, Kate, Joshua, Joshua," and he calls us in. To come and experience this rest and sit at my feet. I want to end with this quote um, by a theologian named Michael Reeves. He says this. He says Christianity is Jesus. The entire story from Genesis to Revelation, it's about Him. The Apostle Paul wrote, for, for me to live is Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, as we just read, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul was speaking plainly that life is found in Jesus Christ, the author and source of it. And if we know Him rightly, we will find nothing else so desirable, so delightful as Him. He will be the center of our life, and the center of our theology, the cornerstone, the jewel. The crown of Christianity is not an idea, it's not a system or a thing, it's not even the gospel. The crown of Christianity is a person, Jesus Christ, and he invites us in and he calls you his by faith. Let us pray. Lord we, we come and experience um